Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll finish The Long Walk, covering chapters 9 through 18. Let's start the show. The long walk continues with only 60 walkers remaining. Garrity is determined to make it to Freeport, where he'll see his mother and girlfriend, Jan. More walkers get their tickets, and the boys continue their discussions as physical and mental exhaustion weigh on them. Eventually, the long walk enters Massachusetts, and only three boys remain. Garrity, McVries, and Stebbins. Only one will be the last walker standing, but even so, at what price victory? Nice. Jay, we're in this section of the book, and one of the things we talked about last episode is how we were a little disappointed that there wasn't a lot more world building going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, King seemed to be very vague as to what sort of world we lived, these characters were in, and what was going on. We got the sense that things weren't great, but not all of the details. And in this one, there's a lot more of that world building we were looking for. Yeah, it definitely satisfied my craving for those details. I still don't know that it was enough, you know, for my, my modern sensibilities, if you will. Uh, I wanted to know what was going on outside of the, the long walk. And King still doesn't really reveal that. But he gives us just a, a little bit more of a taste. Oh, those really hints are so delicious. <laughs> yeah, each one of them is pretty great. The fact there's now a uh, 31st day of April. Yeah, that was the first one in this section. I was like, wait, w- whoa. And, you know, when we talked about the Dark Tower, there were times early on where like, boy, that's a weird little editing mistake. And at first I thought, well, maybe April 31 is an editing mistake. But then there were a couple more that came shortly thereafter that you're like, oh, King's doing something here. Yeah, yeah. There were 51 states. Yep. When I saw that, my immediate question was, what is that 51st state? Mm-hmm. I mean, it could be anything. Is, is it Puerto Rico? Is it, is it Canada? I don't know. Like, right. like, you know, it could be so many things. It could be half of, of Mexico is the 51st state. It's not really important to the story, but it would be kind of cool to have one of those J.R.R. token style maps or like the, the Dark Tower style maps that shows the world of the long walk and the path that they walk. Yep. And then you can see like now there's this, you know, East Pennsylvania and West Pennsylvania or something. <laughs> that could yeah. be fun. And you're not even thinking big enough, Jay. Maybe like the Western eight states all disappeared or were destroyed. And so then they picked up nine states that we don't have today and not not just one new one. What do you think of that? Yeah. yeah. Or maybe California finally broke into five pieces and <laughs> we sold Alaska back to the Russians. Yeah. For but for cut, a net total of uh, of one gain state. Yeah. And uh cut off Florida like Bugs Bunny does in that famous GIF. Yep. Uh, yeah, there were other interesting facts that that um like apparently there were German air raids on the east coast of the United States and there's clearly has been some kind of takeover. The major seems to be the this figurehead leader or commander of this of, of the United States. 
So I'm guessing some sort of military coup. But you know, somebody says in the old days before the change and the squads, when they were still millionaires, like basically went before before a lot of wealth was redistributed to who knows who knows in what way. But clearly, this is not the world that King lived through when he was writing this story. Right. The most intriguing one was this idea that World War II was different in how it played out. So uh, mm. there's talks about German air raids on the East Coast that occurred that people were afraid of. And then later on, they talk about the Provo governor, who was a war hero. Um, he led a raid on a German nuclear base in Santiago in 1953. So yeah, this is definitely not the world that is just, hey, our world just a little bit in the future. This is a total man in the high castle style alternate reality. Or maybe even a Father Callahan like slipping through alternate versions of of the universe or of the of the world, um, making this whole story a kind of Dark Tower Thinny. Well, we didn't play the music, so it's not a Dark Tower Thinny officially. Uh, it, it doesn't count unless <laughs> unless we make it official. Okay. Yes. <laughs> but speaking of Callahan and all of his, you know, world slips, the money's different in this mm. story as well. They're they're doing this thing where they're flipping dimes and it describes the back of the dime, but not the front and how it's like a, a picture of the Potomac and the current U.S. dime and, and every dime leading up to the current U.S. dime does not show that scene. So this is a this is a subtly different dime, but it's still a dime. Yep. And so it just made me you know curious, is FDR on the front side of that dime? Right. Or, or is it, it the major? With yeah. his sunglasses. Yeah, <laughs> who in my mind will always look exactly like the uh, pit boss from Cool Hand Luke. Oh yeah, that's good. I was thinking more David Caruso, but yours makes a lot more sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we also learned that jazz is banned. There's the still the same jazz musicians. They talk about Thelonious Monk and Charlie Parker, but uh, jazz itself is banned. So you have to listen to it on the download. How's Bleeding Gums Murphy going to pay for his $1,000 a day Fabergé egg habit? <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> oh, and one of the walkers mentions a specific long walk 17 years prior. So that tells us that there have been at least 17 long walks. But it feels like, like the way they're talking about that, that wasn't the first one. Right. They were talking about a long walk that set a record. And it'd be kind of amazing if the very first one was also the one that went on the longest <laughs> yeah. or something. So this has been going on for a long time. We've been asking each other that question. How long has this been going on? The society that supports this idea of a long walk, this thing where young men needlessly allow themselves to be killed, that's a, let's just call it a special society, right? Mm, yeah. So what makes it this way? And how did it get that way? And how long has it been that way? This isn't something that could go from not existing to existing overnight. This is something that has to grow organically out of some massive change. Yep. And but for all we know, in this version of the universe, maybe the long walk was a was always around. Maybe that's just been part of American society in this world. The other stuff with World War II and the Germans on the East Coast and the majors takeover, maybe that was that's just standard. Right. That's how it's always been. Yeah. So one thing that remains the same that we get from this is that the boys themselves really have nothing to lose. And as we learned a little bit more about what this 
world is like, mm-hmm. that seems to be more and more the case. It seems like a more violent world, a world where there's no millionaire, so maybe there's nothing to strive for or reach for. And all of the boys, and we talked about this last episode too, if not an outright death wish, are doing this just because there's nothing else to do and this is a chance to do something at least? Or if not, to at least die in a way that isn't killing yourself outright. Um, And I guess that that's one of the themes of this book, right? Is like, why are these boys doing, I mean, it is a theme of the book. Why are these boys doing this and what are they getting out of it? And it's clear that there's really not much of anything they're getting out of this, right? It's best summarized in this quote, Jay, that at one point, one of the guys says, you know, they're all so tired of walking. And I think it's starting to dawn on them that at the beginning of the book, none of them think they're going to die. And then they're coming to this realization after they've seen 40 other people die as we begin this section. One of them says, there ought to be a runner-up prize. And somebody says, what? How about his life? And they say, ah, who'd walk for that? Nobody. You know, so yep. there's this sense that like, no one's going to do it just to keep living. So there's, there is nothing to lose here, like, because no one wants to keep living. Yeah. And you only feel like that's a prize to just keep your life only matters once you're about to lose it mm. in the terms of this walk. Yep. Because they all went into it voluntarily and almost eagerly for all different reasons. Yep. So, I mean, you could say that about any contest. Why did you enter into this contest? It wasn't so that you could just be told you tied or you you didn't, you know, I don't know. It's just, there's no reason to enter the game if there isn't a chance at winning. But here the consequences are so dramatic if you don't win. Mm-hmm. You know, you come in second place, you still get lauded in some way potentially in certain contests or there's a second place prize money or you get the silver medal. So there are potential rewards even if they're not what you want. And obviously, their great competitors would never say that they're playing for silver, but if yeah. you look at people who are Olympians, that is still quite the feat to be the second best person in the world at whatever event that is, and knowing all it took to get there. In this mm-hmm. event, which is literally a lottery to get in, and you know you have a chance to just back out and not do it, yep. they're still fighting for something that, or, or playing for something that if you lose, it's it. You know, There's literally no prize for second place. Yeah, and that exposes the cockeyed logic of this, where they're not willing to have a prize that is nothing, so they're not willing to live for nothing. But the reverse of that is they're going to die for nothing. Mm. So they'll die for nothing, but they won't live for nothing. Yep. I think that is emblematic of the culture that they're in, their worldview, or the world that they occupy and have to navigate and the opportunities that they have, everything about this world is so oppressive that it's, that's another reason why it's nothing to lose, right? Yeah. And it's highlighted by the three characters who become the final three here. Mm. McVrise, who is friends with Stebbins, we get a long discussion about what happened to him, why he has a scar on his face and how that he feels like he has no relationships and that he'll never love again. And he feels like the mm. scar is not only a representation of that, of the, of the failed relationship, but it's also the thing that is going to keep other people from loving him. And so he doesn't talk about his parents at all. He just talks about this failed relationship he has with this woman. And furthermore, he doesn't even feel like he's a provider. Like that's one of the reasons that his girlfriend and he had the fight. For him, that's his reason he feels he has nothing to lose. Yeah. 
And by the way, you accidentally said McVrise is friends with Stebbins. So oh. before every we get hundreds of uh, emails <laughs> telling us that that's not how it was. You meant to say Garrity. That is correct. But speaking of Stebbins, Stebbins, we learn very close to the end of the story that he is the bastard son of the major. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. That alone is the... You know, shocking twists to end all shocking twists. It's almost like M. Night Shyamalan wrote this story. <laughs> and Stebbins wants to confront the major. He thinks he wins either way. His logic is fairly sound, but he learns the hard way that the major couldn't care less. Yep. Because Stebbins' logic is if I win, my prize is you take me into your family. You have to acknowledge me as your son. And this whole bastard thing that has been hanging over my head goes away. If he loses, well, he dies, but he dies at the hands of his father. Yep. So how does his father live with this? Does this, you know, throw a wrench in the whole works? Well, guess what? He dies and the major's just, yep. he's just another walker, right? Yep. It, it, it doesn't matter. So much for Stebbins and his grand theories. Yeah, his, he thinks it's a win-win situation. And in fact, it's a lose-lose situation. Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, we get to our protagonist, which is Garrity. And Garrity is the odd case here, right? Because at first, we don't know a lot about him, and we're, we get bits and pieces. And we finally learn that, that he's sort of a messed up kid. You know, at, at first, we were thinking he's sort of like an everyman, a stand-in, and he's just sort of your average dude. But he's got daddy issues because his dad left and was squatted, so he's probably killed somewhere. He has mommy issues. His mom treated him very oddly and then brought a stepfather into the house that he doesn't get along with. He has all this sexual repression that's played out with his girlfriend. He's from Maine. I mean, he's got everything going against him, Jay. Yeah. I mean, that last thing is probably the worst part. <laughs> it seems like he has something to lose of all of them. Like, he still has a mother. Mm -hmm. The only other character that we see whose mother is around or really spoken of highly is Percy, but Percy's mother is sort of, like, frantic about her son, and, you know, he obviously gets killed. But, like, oddly enough, everyone else doesn't have people, like, on the sidelines watching for them or cheering yeah, them on. no one else. No yeah. one else has this. Yeah. Yeah, Garrity actually has a lot to lose. Yeah. As you said, he has a mother who clearly cares about him. He has a girlfriend who clearly cares about him. And even his pseudo stepfather seems to care enough to worry about his future, try to give him advice. He's not just the guy his mom's, you know, has a relationship with. He's part of the family. Yep. There's a lot going on there. And the problems that and the struggles that we hear Gary talk about, they're nothing like what McVrise went through. No. I mean, and we see how popular Garrity is. Like it, some of it is just celebrity for the sake of celebrity because he's main's own and so there are a lot of people who only know him as a resident of the state yep but it seems like everybody from his high school showed up to cheer him on and i didn't get the impression that they were there to see blood i got the impression that they were there because they were rooting for him to win yep that's the opposite sentiment that every other spectator seems to have so here we have the one person who absolutely should not have gone into this race and it just makes it even more of a folly for him to be in it. Luckily, he, he won. So. Yeah. So let's get to that ending, Jay. I mean. Problem solved. Yeah. Yeah. He had nothing to lose. And it turned out that he did have stuff to lose, but it's okay because he didn't. He won. He's the winner. Yay. Mm -hmm. Go Garrity. I mean, everything's going to be uh, milk and roses, right? Yeah. 
smash cut to him diving into his money vault like Scrooge McDuck (laughs) and uh, swimming in the gold coins. Yeah, gets out of the pool, sits on a chaise lounge with a fancy cocktail. He's got it all going on. Yeah. Obviously, it doesn't end that way for Garrity, unfortunately. Let's talk a little bit before we get to to Garrity himself. We find out not only that Stebbins' father is the major, but that Stebbins considers himself a rabbit, that he was conjured by the major to be the one to to keep the walk going. Mm Mm-hmm. It looks like Stebbins is actually going to win. So when it gets down to the final three, McVries, as he said he would do earlier on, just sits down and says, I'm done. He doesn't want Garrity to help him. And it's down to just the two, Garrity and Stebbins. And then Garrity is about to give up as well. He knows he doesn't have it in him anymore. So he walks up to Stebbins, who's actually in front of him at that point, to tell him, I'm going to give up. And Stebbins is dead. He's, he dies on his feet, falls to the ground, gets shot, and Garrity has won. Yeah, it's funny. Like, there's just so much foreshadowing. Was it Olson who had this idea of a newspaper headline saying, like, long walk, won by dead man? Well, they think Olson's going to be the one who wins because he's been, like, almost catatonic for upwards of a day. He isn't eating, he isn't drinking, and yet he's still walking. Like, we think he's going to just outwalk us all. And and that would be Mm -hmm. the headline, long walk, won by dead man. Yeah. And then they talk about a previous winner who was also from Maine, mm-hmm. and it turns out that he won, but then he died a week later. So there's all this foreshadowing that whoever wins this is not going to be in good shape. And it turns out that that's what happens to Garrity. Um, when Stebbins dies, Garrity is confused about what is happening, and he continues walking. And then we get that last line that he just sort of runs further towards the outstretched arms of a dark figure. Mm-hmm. And we don't get anything beyond that. So this is a ambiguous ending, to say the least, Jay. Yeah, it's just like M. Night Shyamalan wrote it. (laughs) Except it didn't happen in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah, that's right. This was in Maine. So, Jay, what do you think happened to Garrity? I I guess the, the, the medical reading of this or the biological reading of this is that he reached a, a point of physical and mental exhaustion that he had like a, a psychotic break of some mm. kind. He has now gone mad. And at this moment of extremists, when the major stops him to congratulate him for winning the long walk, the major's touch on his shoulder is like the final trigger that that's what sends him not just walking, but running. As unlikely as that might be for somebody in the condition he was in, it's a great metaphor for King to lean on, that he's not walking anymore, and he's definitely not stopping. He's doing the opposite. He's actually speeding up, and he's heading right to this mental end. This madness is, is this dark figure. He is now at this point where he is convinced that he sees the, the disembodied spirits of all of his former long walk companions. They're still on the road with him, which means he needs to keep going. The walk isn't over yet. It doesn't matter what anybody might say. And now add to that the specter of the dark figure beckoning from down the road. Yep. And is that dark figure supposed to just be like the Grim Reaper? Is he just walking towards death? And when his body finally does give out, that's the moment that he catches up to that thing. That was the reading that I took away, that Garrity dies at the end. That that dark figure that he's that beckons to him and that he runs towards his death and that he realizes that that's all that's in store for him is death. And so he runs into the arms of death. Hmm. I took that metaphor as literal. Okay. Either way, it's not a happy ending. Madness, death, like, I, I, I don't think things are good for Garrity. No, no. I, I mean, 
I've been rooting for Garrity since page one of this story. So when we get to this point, I accept the fact that he has reached this point of madness, but I'm kind of hoping that his madness is temporary, that this is just a result of his physical state, and that if he gets carted off in an ambulance and is treated for his injuries and is allowed to rest, recover, and heal, that his mind will too, and mm-hmm. that he will come out of this not too much worse for wear. But that's just me being optimistic where I have no right to be that way. Right. It, this is a very pessimistic story. This is early Stephen King. This is kind of pre-Stephen King. Yep. There is no reason to be optimistic. The whole point of this is that this is a game with no winner. Right. It's a futile gesture, mm-hmm. ultimately. So I think you were to say that there's a potential that, uh, for a third option that the dark figures doesn't represent madness or death, that it potentially could be something else? Yeah. What if that dark figure was actually Randall Flagg? Now you're talking. Now I'm talking thinnies. Ooh, Dark Tower thinnies. Yeah, this dark figure beckoning Garrity, I could see a a decent correlation or, or overlap between some of the ways we've seen Flag described. So having Flag show up at just the right moment to just mess with the winner of the long walk that sounds like flag. That's on brand for flag. Yep. And you got to think timing wise that this happened around the same time that King was writing the Dark Man poem. Yeah. Like it, it, it checks out that way. And if you want to hear our thoughts on the Dark Man poem, check our Patreon where we had a bonus episode on it. So any other thinnies? I did not notice any other ones besides that potential for the dark figure or the dark man to be flag. I noticed a couple. One was the journey that the walkers took was a lot like Roland's journey through the desert mm. in The Gunslinger, and that we learn that part of his gunslinger training is going through the levels of Kef, where he basically tells his body, I know you're thirsty, I know you're tired, I know you're hungry, just keep going. It's almost like a meditative thing. And that's kind of like what these boys on the long walk are doing. They're surviving on concentrates and limited supplies and just their bodies are deteriorating. It's shocking how quickly they lose weight and how they become these skeletal beings that barely are alive, some of whom seem to be actually dead and still walking. Um, The other one is that Garrity has this moment where he's overwhelmed by the sounds and experiences of the crowd of spectators. And he starts to think of the crowd as like a kind of entity. King capitalizes the word. Crowd does this. Crowd does that. It's now taken on like, you know, proper noun status. Garrity had a vivid and scary image, the great God crowd clawing its way out of the Augusta Basin on scarlet spider legs and devouring them all alive. Mm-hmm. And when I saw scarlet spider legs, I'm like, tee-hee, tee-hee, that's the Crimson <laughs> King. <Hee-hee." laughs> yep. So there's our big Dark Tower thinny. Yeah, we almost talked about the crowd as a bigger piece of this as a theme because mm-hmm. that gets at that idea that the crowd is something that needs blood or wants sacrifice or something. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he makes it a proper noun, like you said, and points it out as some sort of entity makes that all the more reason that they're one of the other antagonists of this book. It's not just the major, it's also the crowd that is, you know, not only looking for souvenirs, you know, they're collecting 
feces and and things that the boys throw out, but also wanting death and and craving it and um, any interaction that they can get with these kids along the way. So, uh, yeah, when you pointed out that 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 that's a good way of summarizing the idea of the crowd as this entity. Speaking of picking up feces, I think it might be time for yucking it up. I have one that, unfortunately, I wish I didn't have to say because it, it's <laughs> quite the yucking it up. Olsen gets shot in the stomach, and when that happens, the blue snakes of Olsen's intestines were slowly slipping through his fingers. They dropped like link sausages against his groin, where they flapped obscenely. He stopped, bent over as if to retrieve them, and threw up a huge glut of blood and bile. And not only do I think it's yucking it up, but one of his fellow walkers, Abraham, says, what a fucking gross out. Oh, Jesus. And then Abraham himself throws up. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a little intense for me. It's kind of lame that he says gross out, though. I don't know. Something about that. It's not like he doesn't have curses at his fingertips here. Yeah. <laughs> I would just picture him just just like <laughs> screaming in horror, yelling, fuck, and then puking through the, the word fuck. Uh, not like, oh, what a gross out. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Uh, there are a couple of times when Garrity's talking to Baker, and we learn that Baker comes from a, a family of morticians. Yes. So he knows a lot about burial process and entombment and coffin choice and things like that. And he starts to obsess about his own burial. And he says, things rot quick in the damp, but above ground, you still have to worry about the rats. And the rats go for the soft parts going right for my eyes like jujubes. So he turns the rotting corpse into rats just chomping on his eyes and his ears. And yeah, it's, it's pretty terrible. Yeah. So, so two things about Baker. And I love the fact that he has a family of morticians so they can draw on a couple stories here. So one is that he knows he's not going to win. And so he asks Garrity, promise me if you win, make sure that I get a lead-lined coffin, <laughs> specifically so the, his eyes don't get gnawed out by rats. He wants to protect his body after his death. But the second thing, which is, which is a much better one, was I think it's his uncle who owns the funeral home. And it turns out that when his uncle died, he got cremated. <laughs> one of the other characters says, well, that's not good for business. I mean, if you're not going to do your own thing and get cremated. So I thought that was a nice little touch. Yeah. Baker's whole yeah. mortician story. Yeah. When you're not willing to eat your own dog food, people don't want your product. Right? Exactly. I had a couple others. At one point, Olsen had physically degraded to the point where we get the description that his breath was like a sewer draft. Yeah. Like, huh. Yeah. And finally, when Milligan dies, he collapses and he goes face first into the street. And the way he collapses, his face slides forward on the end of his nose. And the line in the book is, abrading the tip of it on the road like soft chalk on a rough blackboard, wearing his nose away on the road. Uh, like, yeah. oh, one of the scariest and visually shocking ways a person can be maimed is if part of their nose is cut off. Mm. It's a tough thing to see. And that's what I pictured, like that his face was scraped down to that open skull hole because yep. he fell so hard and slid so far on his nose. That it just wore it down like a piece of chalk. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take a moment to thank our patrons. If you would like to become a patron, you can support our show and get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. 
Visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to learn more. Sean, is it time for some fun stuff? I think it is. Awesome. You want to kick us off? Yeah, so I'll just mention Milligan again. Jay, we mentioned before how we're reading this book, and I am reading, I think it's the original paperback of the Bachman books. And two things about it. One is that the cover is what looks to be a road winding into the sunset, and there are skulls along the way. So I'm taking it as that the cover itself is a cover of The Long Walk, despite the fact that this has the first four Bachman books in it. The second thing I wanted to notice is that you and I are reading slightly different edition, I think. I think you're reading yes. the ebook, And there was at least one update between my book and your book. And that's the fact that the character that you just mentioned, Milligan, is one of the last five, I believe, of The Long Walkers. And in my book, he is named Radigan, not Milligan. It's not Broadigan? No, it's not Broadigan. It is definitely Radigan. One of the ways I found that out is because I am such a nerd that I was keeping a spreadsheet of all the long walkers, their numbers, and when and how they died. And a character named Milligan already died earlier in the book. And so then when he got mentioned again at the end of the book, I'm like, is there two Milligans? That seems a little bit odd. And in fact, when you and I compared editions, we found out that in my book, it is Milligan and in your book, it is Radigan. That's why. Yeah. It made me somewhat interested to know what other changes exist between this version and your version, but not enough to go compare the two. I think in my version, Stebbins is the true born son of the major. <laughs> I will say there is one other thing that you and I both noticed that we then realized was probably also updated for the actual publication of the Bachman book, and that is that one of the characters goes insane, and when he does, King describes it as he starts running around in circles as if he's a video game character that's caught on a weird loop or glitching mm. in some way. And when the book was published in 1977 or 8, whenever it was, 79, that would not have been an odd reference because you would get video games that would have glitchy characters. But King wrote this book supposedly in 66 or 67, and there would not be a video game in that sense nope. that would have characters doing that. And so both of us wondered like, oh, how much tweaking did he do between the original manuscript and when this actually got published? Yeah, he clearly gave it a pass. I mean, yep. it, not, not just fixing editorial mistakes. I right. think he, he probably updated the whole story. Um, I got kind of a twisted kick out of what I thought of as the horror version of the Little Mermaid story. <laughs> Garrity's thinking about how the long walk is much like the bargain that a mermaid may have made, where to magically change or trade her mermaid tail for human legs, all she needs to do is agree that every step she takes on those human legs on dry land would be like walking on knives. Ah. I mean, the Little Mermaid. Like, she couldn't speak, right? Wasn't that her part? Right, she gives up her voice, yes. Yeah, which, you know, that's a big part of her character. She can sing and all this. So so the, that's why this is the horror version. It's like, uh, talk all you want. It's the knives right. for you. Yeah, that's what's going to get you. Yeah. I really liked the line from Olsen about how God's garden is full of weeds. Yeah, that's a nice line. And the more I thought about that line, the more I thought that could potentially be a Dark Tower thinny, because isn't that where the rose grows in New York? It's in a lot full of weeds. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, at one point, as the walkers head through one of the cities, there are magazine streamers that are flying through the air. And Garrity grabs one of the magazine streamers and he looked at it and he was brought face to face with John Travolta. Well, we at least know John Travolta made it into this other universe, Jay. Or was it Nicolas Cage? Ooh. Did I just blow your mind? <laughs> yeah, I like it. Ah. <laughs> uh. My final fun stuff was the scene when King once again coming at us with the awesome Italian-American stereotypes, or in this case, maybe just Italian immigrant stereotype. Yeah. He introduces this character, Dom Lantio, and he's on the roadside giving away free slices of watermelon to the <laughs> long walkers. And it's just like this generous thing. He's not trying to mess up the walkers. He wants to help them out. Who wouldn't want a nice cold slice of fresh watermelon? when they're dying on the hot road in early May, right? Of course, this is against the law, so the cops come and, and give him a hard time. And he goes off. What you mean? What you mean I can't? These my watermelon, you dumb cop. I want to give, I gonna give. Hey, what you think? Get off of my case, you hard ass. <laughs> it doesn't even sound real when I say it out loud. It's no. just so bad. <laughs> just, what you think? <laughs> but I, I got a laugh out of it. I think all you could take from this, Jay, is that when King started writing this when he was like 18 years old, he had never met anybody who was anything other than a waspy main person. And he had never met anybody of any ethnicity whatsoever. So he was just making stuff up on the fly. I assume this is what an Italian immigrant sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, when he was starting this scene, I thought he was going to be giving away flavored ice. Mm, yeah the classic italian ice street cart kind of thing right but no it was watermelon and that's great too uh, all right well my last one for the long walk is the aforementioned spreadsheet i mentioned king did a pretty good job in tracking everything he mentions all but two of the deaths there's two that just sort of happen in between chapters that don't even get a, a mention and I try to do it like a logic puzzle and, and match it up but there's just big gaps i think there's basically 50 or so named boys and, and deaths along the way, and they don't all match up. But one of the interesting things I thought is that we realize is that the boys are numbered in alphabetical order, right? Yes. It goes Arison, Abraham, and it ends with Zuck. And uh, what is interesting is that number 13, we know, is the character Roger Fenum, F-E-N-U-M. Mm -hmm. And then our main character and the ultimate winner is Ray Garrity, 47. So that means that there are 33 spots in between Roger Fenham and Ray Garrity, and none of these characters are named, numbers 14 through 46, but somehow their last names all have to fit in between Fenham, F-E, and Garrity, G-A. And I just, I was trying to imagine, like, I think King, once he realized he did that, he's like, eh, I'm not going to change Garrity's number. I'll just leave all those blank. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> it's too hard to come up with that many <laughs> names. All right. So, Jay, overall, uh, I'm glad we read The Long Walk. Like I said, it's been years since I've read it. It was fun Same. to come back to it, even though it was not a very happy story, but it was still an interesting read. Yes. I enjoy this book. I like the story. I dig what King's going for. It's not a perfect book, but it's effective, though, because I felt the tension and the strain and the, mm. the wearing down of the participants in The Walk as I read the story. And it, I didn't find reading it fatiguing, but I felt my anxiety increase as I approached the end of the story. 
in a way that I, I thought really makes this an effective thing. I didn't want yes. anybody to die. I didn't want anybody to lose. And I definitely didn't want Garrity to win the way he won. But I knew that all those things were going to happen. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it hit me a lot harder this time than it had previously. Mm -hmm. I guess that's just being older and realizing the consequences of what happened to all these kids, you know, as characters. I know that a lot of folks have wanted option and make this into a film and it might actually happen at some point, uh, especially as we get into this King Renaissance as more and more of his stuff gets optioned and actually made. I don't know how easy this would be to film. Obviously, there's a lot of action sequences, but there's mm -hmm. a lot of just standing around of people walking and talking. So I don't know if you get like a whoever directs the West Wing and... Yeah, this is an Aaron Sorkin dream project. Yeah. Lots of walking and talking, so it would be interesting to see, though. All right, well, that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Excuse me. All this disgusting talk is making my bile rise. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Just Shatnered all over you right there. <laughs> for William Shatner, I'm Leonard Nimoy. Thanks for listening. I am, and always shall be, your friend. Of all the souls I've encountered in my travels, this was the most human.